William Wordsworth, the very name is poetry. It is, at once, alliterative and perfectly balanced, tuneful and resonant in even the crudest of ears. It's tied together by three W's and four syllables, two in the front, an equal number in the rear. The work for which Wordsworth, that distant musician, is most famous is The Prelude. It is an autobiographical epic of profound honesty, inexhaustible enjoyment, and tremendous scope. It is a most intimate poem from which, thanks to its author's inability to conceal himself, neither detail nor feeling has been scrubbed. The passions of youth and the regrets of maturity all have their place in its body. It was his goal, as it is every Englishman's goal, to rival in eloquence and surpass in renown the incomparable drama of that nation, Paradise Lost. The conservative Wordsworth, in his attempt to challenge the Puritan Milton, borrowed the theme of Genesis, not of the world or that virgin soil out of which our first parents sprang, but of himself, that peculiar subject into whom he was fearlessly willing to probe. Thus, the prelude, started in 1798, before the poet had attained to the third decade of his life, recounts Wordsworth's life from its bucolic beginning, to its innocent childhood, to its rebellious adolescence, and, finally, to its restful conclusion. The work, 8,000 lines of blank verse, to which, with plans for a sequel, many more were supposed to be added, was completed in 1805, but would have to wait another four decades and a half before its posthumous publication. In this episode, I'll be reading the epic's first book, in which the precocious author's childhood is described. 
The Prelude by William Wordsworth Book the First Introduction Childhood and School Time Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze that blows from the green fields and from the clouds and from the sky. It beats against my cheek and seems half conscious of the joy it gives. A welcome messenger, a welcome friend, a captive greets thee, coming from a house of bondage, from yon city's walls set free, a prison where he hath been long immured. Now I am free, enfranchised and at large may fix my habitation where I will. What dwelling shall receive me? In what vale shall be my harbor? Underneath what grove shall I take up my home? In what sweet stream shall with its Murmurs lull me to my rest. The earth is all before me, with a heart joyous, nor scared at its own liberty. I look about, and should the guide I choose be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. I breathe again. Trances of thought and mountings of the mind come fast upon me. It is shaken off. As by miraculous gift, tis shaken off. That burden of my own unnatural self, the heavy weight of many a weary day, not mine, and such as were not made for me. Long months of peace, if such bold word accord with any promises of human life, long months of ease and undisturbed delight are mine in prospect. Whither shall I turn? By road or pathway or through open field or shall a twig 
or any floating thing upon the river, point me out my course. Enough that I am free. For months to come may dedicate myself to chosen tasks, may quit the tiresome sea and dwell on the shore, if not a settler on the soil, at least to drink wild water and to pluck green herbs and gather fruits fresh from their native bough. Nay more, if I may trust myself, this hour hath brought a gift that consecrates my joy. For I, methought, while the sweet breath of heaven was blowing on my body, felt within a corresponding mild creative breeze, a vital breeze which traveled gently on, over things which it had made and is become a tempest, a redundant energy vexing its own creation. Tis a power that does not come unrecognized, a storm which, breaking up a long continued frost, brings with it vernal promises, the hope of active days, of dignity and thought, of prowess in an honorable field, pure passions, virtue, knowledge and delight the holy life of music and of verse. Thus far, O oh friend, did I not use to make a present joy the matter of my song, pour out that day my soul in measured strains. Even in the very words which I have here recorded, to the open fields I told a prophesy. Poetic numbers came spontaneously, and clothed in priestly robe my spirit, thus singled out, as it might seem for holy services. Great hopes were mine. My own voice cheered me, and, far more, the mind's internal echo of the imperfect sound. To both I listened, drawing from them both a cheerful confidence in things to come. Whereat, being not unwilling now to give a respite to this passion, I paced on gently, with careless steps, and came ere long to a 
green shady place where down I sate beneath a tree. Slackening my thoughts by choice and settling into gentler happiness. Twas autumn and a calm and placid day with warmth as much as needed from a sun, two hours decline towards the west. A day with silver clouds and sunshine on the grass. And in the sheltered grove where I was couched, a perfect stillness. On the ground I lay, passing through many thoughts, yet mainly such as to myself pertained. I made a choice of one sweet veil, whither my steps should turn, and saw, methought, the very house and fields present before my eyes, nor did I fail to add, meanwhile, a assurance of some work of glory there forthwith to be begun, perhaps, too, there performed. Thus long I lay, cheered by the genial pillow of the earth beneath my head, soothed by a sense of touch, from the warm ground that balanced me, else lost entirely, seeing not, not hearing, save when here and there about the grove of oaks where was my bed, an acorn from the trees fell audibly and with a startling sound. Thus, occupied in mind, I lingered here, contented, nor rose up until the sun had almost touched the horizon. Bidding then a farewell to the city left behind, even with the chance equipment of that hour, I journeyed towards the veil which I had chosen. It was a splendid evening, and my soul did once again make trial of the strength restored to her afresh. Nor did she want Aeolian visitations, but the harp was soon defrauded, and the banded host of harmony dispersed in straggling sounds and lastly utter silence. Be it so, it is an injury, said I, to this day, to think of anything but present joy. So, like a peasant, I pursued my road beneath the evening sun, 
nor had one wish again to bend the Sabbath of that time to a servile yoke. What need of many words? A pleasant, loitering journey through two days continued brought me to my hermitage. I spare to speak, my friend, of what ensued. The admiration and the love, the life in common things, the endless store of things rare, or at least so seeming every day found all about me in one neighborhood, the self-congratulations, the complete composure and the happiness entire. But speedily a longing in me rose to brace myself to some determined aim, reading or thinking, either to lay up new stores or rescue from decay the old by timely interference. I had hopes still higher that with a frame of outward life I might endue, might fix in a visible home, some portion of those phantoms of conceit that had been floating loose about so long, and to such beings temperately deal forth the many feelings that oppressed my heart. But I have been discouraged. Gleams of light flash often from the east, then disappear, and mock me with a sky that ripens not into a steady morning. If my mind, remembering the sweet promise of the past, would gladly grapple with some noble theme, Vain is her wish. Wherever she turns, she finds impediments from day to day, renewed. And now it would content me to yield up those lofty hopes a while for present gifts of humbler industry. But O oh, dear friend, the poet, gentle creature as he is, hath like the lover his unruly times, his fits when he is neither sick nor well, though no distress be near him, but his own unmanageable thoughts, the mind itself, the meditative mind. Best pleased, perhaps, while she is as duteous as the mother dove sits brooding, lives not always to that end, but hath less quiet instincts, goadings on that drive her as in trouble through the groves. 
With me is now such passion, which I blame no otherwise than as it lasts too long. When, as becomes a man who would prepare for such a glorious work, I through myself make rigorous inquisition, the report is often cheering, for I neither seem to lack that first great gift, the vital soul, nor general truths which are themselves a sort of elements and agents, underpowers, subordinate helpers of the living mind. Nor am I naked in external things, forms, images, nor numerous other aids of less regard, though one perhaps with toil, and needful to build up a poet's praise. Time, place, and manners, these I seek, and these I find in plenteous store, but nowhere such as may be singled out with steady choice. No little band of yet remembered names whom I, in perfect confidence, might hope to summon back from lonesome banishment and make them inmates in the hearts of men now living, or to live in times to come. Sometimes, mistaking vainly, as I fear, proud spring-tide swellings for a regular sea, I settle on some British theme, some old romantic tale by Milton left unsung. More often resting at some gentle place within the groves of chivalry, I pipe among the shepherds, with reposing knights sit by a fountain side and hear their tales. Sometimes, more sternly move, I would relate how Vanquished Mithridates northward passed, and hidden in the cloud of years became that Odin, father of a race by whom perished the Roman Empire. How the friends and followers of Sertorius out of Spain, flying, found shelter in the fortunate isles, and left their usages, their arts and laws, to disappear by a slow, gradual death to dwindle and to perish one by one, starved in those narrow bounds, but not the soul of liberty, which fifteen hundred years survived, and when the European came with skill and power that could not be withstood, did like a pestilence maintain its hold and wasted down by glorious death that race of natural heroes. Or I would record how in tyrannic times some unknown man heard of in the chronicles of kings 
suffered in silence for the love of truth. How that one Frenchman, through continued force of meditation on the inhuman deeds of the first conquerors of the Indian Isles, went single in his ministry across the ocean, not to comfort the oppressed, but like a thirsty wind to roam about withering the oppressor. Augustavus found help at his need in Del Carlia's mines. How Wallace fought for Scotland, left the name of Wallace to be found like a wild flower all over this dear country, left the deeds of Wallace like a family of ghosts to people the steep rocks and river banks, her natural sanctuaries, with a local soul of independence and stern liberty. Sometimes it suits me better to shape out from some tale from my own heart, more near akin to my own passions and habitual thoughts. Some variegated story, in the main, lofty, with interchange of gentler things, but deadening admonitions will succeed. And the whole beauteous fabric seems to lack foundation, and withal appears throughout shadowy and unsubstantial. Then, last wish, my last and favorite aspiration. Then, I yearn towards some philosophic song of truth that cherishes our daily life with meditations passionate from deep recesses in man's heart, immortal verse thoughtfully fitted to the Orphean lyre. But from this awful burthen I full soon take refuge and beguile myself with trust that mellower years will bring a riper mind and clearer insight. Thus from day to day I live a mockery of the brotherhood of vice and virtue, with no skill to part vague longing that is bred by want of power from paramount impulse not to be withstood. A timorous capacity from prudence, from circumspection, infinite delay. Humility and modest awe themselves betray me, serving often for a cloak to a more subtle selfishness that now doth lock my functions up in blank reserve, now dupes me by an over-anxious eye, 
that with a false activity beats off simplicity and self-presented truth. Ah, better far than this to stray about voluptuously through fields and rural walks and ask no record of the hours given up to vacant musing, unreproved neglect of all things and deliberate holiday. Far better never to have heard the name of zeal and just ambition than to live thus baffled by a mind that every hour turns recreant to her task, takes heart again, then feels immediately some hollow thought hang like an interdict upon her hopes. This is my lot. For either still I find some imperfection in the chosen theme, or see of absolute accomplishment much wanting, so much wanting in myself, that I recoil and droop and seek repose and indolence from vain perplexity unprofitably traveling toward the grave, like a false steward who hath much received and renders nothing back. Was it for this that one, the fairest of all rivers, loved to blend his murmurs with my nurse's song and from his alder shades and rocky falls and from his fords and shallows sent a voice that flowed along my dreams for this didst thou o derwin Traveling over the green plains near my sweet birthplace, didst thou, beauteous stream, make ceaseless music through the night and day, which with its steady cadence, tempering our human waywardness, composed my thoughts to more than infant softness, giving me among the fretful dwellings of mankind, a knowledge, a dim earnest of the calm that nature breathes among the hills and groves. And having left his mountains to the towers of Cockermouth, that beauteous river came Behind my father's house he passed, close by, along the margin of our terrace walk. He was a playmate whom we dearly loved. Oh, many a time have I, a five years child, a naked boy, in one delightful rill, a little mill race severed from his stream, 
made one long bathing of a summer's day, basked in the sun and plunged, and basked again, alternate dull a summer's day, or coursed over the sandy fields, leaping through groves of yellow grunsel, or when crag and hill the woods and distant skidal's lofty height were bronzed with a deep radiance, stood alone beneath the sky, as if I had been born on Indian plains, and from my mother's hut had run abroad in wantonness to sport, a naked savage in the thunder shower. Fair seed time had my soul, and I grew up fostered alike by beauty and by fear. Much favored in my birthplace, and no less in that beloved vale to which, ere long, I was transplanted. Well, I call to mind, was at an early age, ere I had seen nine summers, when upon the mountain's slope the frost and breath of frosty wind had snapped the last autumnal crocus. It was my joy to wander half the night among the cliffs and the smooth hollows, where the woodcocks ran along the open turf. In thought and wish that time, my shoulder all with springs hung. I was a fell destroyer. On the heights scudding away from snare to snare, I plied my anxious visitation, hurrying on, still hurrying, hurrying, onward. Moon and stars were shining over my head. I was alone, and seemed to be a trouble to the peace that was among them. Sometimes it befell in these night wanderings that a strong desire overpowered my better reason, and the bird which was the captive of another's toils became my prey. And when the deed was done, I heard among the solitary hills low breathings coming after me and sounds of undistinguishable motion, steps almost as silent as the turf they trod. Nor less in springtime when on southern banks the Shining sun had from his knot of leaves decoyed the primrose flower. And when the vales and woods were warm, was I a plunderer then in the high places, on the lonesome peaks wherever, among the mountains and the winds, the mother bird had built her lodge. Though mean my object, and inglorious, 
yet the end was not ignoble. Oh, when I have hung above the raven's nest by knots of grass and half-inch fissures in the slippery rock, but ill-sustained and almost as it seemed, suspended by the blast which blew amain, shouldering the naked crag. Oh, at that time, while on the perilous ridge I hung alone, with what strange utterance did the loud dry wind blow through my ears. The sky seemed not a sky of earth, and with what motion moved the clouds. The mind of man is framed even like the breath and harmony of music. There is a dark, invisible workmanship that reconciles discordant elements and makes them move in one society. Ah me, let all the terrors all the early miseries, regrets, vexations, lassitudes, that all the thoughts and feelings which have been infused into my mind should ever have made up the calm existence that is mine when I am worthy of myself. Praise to the end. Thanks, likewise, for the means. But I believe that nature, oftentimes, when she would frame a favored being from his earliest dawn of infancy, doth open out the clouds, as at the touch of lightning, seeking him with gentlest visitation. Not the less, Though haply aiming at the self-same end, does it delight her sometimes to employ severer interventions, ministry more palpable, and so she dealt with me. One evening, surely I was led by her, I went alone into a shepherd's boat, a skiff that to a willow tree was tied within a rocky cave, its usual home. Twas by the shores of Patterdale, a vale wherein I was a stranger. Thither come a schoolboy traveler at the holidays. Forth rambled from the village inn alone, no sooner had I sight of this small skiff, discovered thus by unexpected chance that I unloosed her tether and embarked. The moon was up. The lake was shining clear among the hoary mountains. From the shore I pushed and struck 
the oars and struck again in cadence. And my little boat moved on, even like a man who walks with stately step, though bent on speed. It was an act of stealth and troubled pleasure. Not without the voice of mountain echoes did my boat move on, leaving behind her still on either side small circles glittering idly in the moon until they melted all into one track of sparkling light. A rocky steep uprose above the cavern of the willow tree, and now, as suited one who proudly rode with his best skill, I fixed a steady view upon the top of that same craggy ridge, the bound of the horizon, for behind was nothing but the stars and the gray sky. She was an elf in pinnace. Lustily I dipped my oars into the silent lake, and as I rose upon the stroke, my boat went heaving through the water like a swan. When from behind that craggy steep, till then the bound of the horizon, a huge cliff, as if with voluntary power, instinct upreared its head. I struck and struck again, and, growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars, and still, with measured motion, like a living thing, strode after me. With trembling hands I turned, and through the silent water stole my way back to the cavern of the willow tree. There, in her mooring place, I left my bark, and through the meadows homeward went with grave and serious thoughts. And after I had seen that spectacle for many days, my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. In my thoughts, there was a darkness Call it solitude or blank desertion. No familiar shapes of hourly objects, images of trees, of sea or sky, no colors of green fields, huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men, moved slowly through the mind by day and were the trouble of my dreams. Wisdom and spirit of the universe, 
thou soul that art the eternity of thought, that givest to forms and images a breath and everlasting motion, not in vain, by day or starlight thus from my first dawn of childhood didst thou intertwine for me the passions that build up our human soul, not with the mean and vulgar works of man, but with high objects, with enduring things, with life and nature, purifying thus the elements of feeling and of thought, and sanctifying by such discipline, both pain and fear, until we recognize a grandeur in the beatings of the heart. Nor was this fellowship vouchsafed to me with stinted kindness. In November days, when vapors rolling down the valleys made a lonely scene more lonesome. Among woods at noon and mid the calm of summer nights, when, by the margin of the trembling lake, Beneath the gloomy hills I homeward went in solitude. Such intercourse was mine. T'was mine among the fields both day and night, And by the waters all the summer long. And in the frosty season, when the sun was set, and visible for many a mile the cottage windows through the twilight blazed, I heeded not the summons. Happy time it was, indeed, for all of us. To me it was a time of rapture. Clear and loud the village clock told six. I wheeled about, proud and exulting, like an untired horse that cares not for its home. All shod with steel, we hissed along the polished ice in games confederate, imitative of the chase and woodland pleasures, the resounding horn, the pack-loud bellowing, and the hunted Hair. So through the darkness and the cold we flew, and not a voice was idle. With the din, meanwhile, the precipices rang aloud, the leafless trees, and every icy crag tinkled like iron while the distant hills into the tumult sent an alien sound of melancholy, not unnoticed, while the stars eastward were sparkling clear, and in the west the orange sky of evening died away. 
Not seldom from the uproar I retired into a silent bay, or sportively glanced sideway, leaving the tumultuous throng to cut across the image of a star that gleamed upon the ice. And oftentimes when we had given our bodies to the wind and all the shadowy banks on either side came sweeping through the darkness, spinning still the rapid line of motion. Then at once have I, reclining back upon my heels, stopped short, yet still the solitary cliffs wheeled by me, even as if the earth had rolled with visible motion her diurnal round. Behind me did they stretch in solemn train, feebler and feebler, and I stood and watched till all was tranquil as a dreamless sleep. Yea, presences of nature, in the sky and on the earth, a visions of the hills, in souls of lonely places. Can I think a vulgar hope was yours when ye employed such ministry, when ye through many a year haunting me thus among my boyish sports, on caves and trees, upon the woods and hills, impressed upon all forms the characters of danger or desire, and thus did make the surface of the universal earth with triumph and delight and hope and fear work like a sea. Not uselessly employed, I might pursue this theme through every change of exercise and play to which the year did summon us in its delightful round. We were a noisy crew. The sun in heaven beheld not veils more beautiful than ours, nor saw a race in happiness and joy more worthy of the ground where they were sown. I would record with no reluctant voice the Woods of autumn in their hazel bowers with milk-white clusters hung. The rod and line, true symbol of the foolishness of hope, which with its strong enchantment led us on by rocks and pools, shut out from every star all the green summer, to forlorn cascades among the windings of the mountain brooks. Unfading recollections. At this hour, the heart is almost mine with which I felt from some hilltop on sunny afternoons the kite high up among the fleecy clouds pull at its rein like an impatient courser or from the meadows sent on gusty days, 
beheld her breast the wind, then suddenly dashed headlong and rejected by the storm. Yea, lowly cottages in which ye dwelt, a ministration of your own was yours, a sanctity, a safeguard, and a love. Can I forget you, being as ye were so beautiful among the pleasant fields in which ye stood? Or can I here forget the plain and seemly countenance with which ye dealt out your plain comforts? Yet had ye delights and exultations of your own, Eager and never weary, we pursued our home amusements by the warm peat fire at evening, when with pencil and with slate, in square divisions parceled out, and all with crosses and with ciphers scribbled over, we schemed and puzzled, head opposed to head, in strife too humble to be named in verse or round the naked table, snow-white deal, cherry or maple, sat in close array, into the combat, loo or whist, led on thick-ribbed army, not as in the world neglected and ungratefully thrown by even for the very service they had wrought, but husbanded, through many a long campaign. Uncouth assemblage was it, where no few had changed their functions. Some plebeian cards, which fate beyond the promise of their birth had glorified, and called to represent the persons of departed potentates, Oh, with what echoes on the board they fell. Ironic diamonds, clubs, hearts, diamonds, spades. A congregation piteously akin. Cheap matter do they give to boyish wit. Those sooty knaves precipitated down with scoffs and taunts like Vulcan out of heaven, the paramount ace, a moon in her eclipse, queens gleaming through their splendor's last decay, and monarchs surly at the wrongs sustained by royal visages. Meanwhile, abroad the heavy rain was falling, where the frost raged bitterly, with keen and silent tooth and, interrupting oft the impassioned game, from Eastwaite's neighboring lake the splitting ice, while it sank down towards the water, sent among the meadows and the hills its long and dismal yellings, like the noise of wolves when they are howling round the Bothnic main. 
nor, sedulous as I have been to trace how nature by extrinsic passion first peopled my mind with beauteous forms or grand, and made me love them, may I well forget how other pleasures have been mine, and joys of subtler origin, how I have felt, not seldom, even in that tempestuous time, those hallowed and pure notions of the sense which seem, in their simplicity, to own an intellectual charm, that calm delight which, if I err not, surely must belong to those first-born affinities that fit our new existence to existing things, and, in our dawn of being, constitute the bond of union betwixt life and joy. Yes, I remember, when the changeful earth and twice five seasons on my mind had stamped the faces of the moving year, even then, a child, I held unconscious intercourse with the eternal beauty, drinking in a pure organic pleasure from the lines of curling mist or from the level plain of waters colored by the steady clouds. The sands of Westmoreland, the creeks and bays of Cumbria's rocky limits, they can tell how, when, the sea threw off this evening shade, and to the shepherds' huts beneath the crags did send sweet notice of the rising moon. How I have stood, to fancies such as these, engrafted in the tenderness of thought, a stranger, linking with the spectacle no conscious memory of a kindred sight, and bringing with me no peculiar sense of quietness or peace. Yet I have stood, even while mine eye has moved over three long leagues of shining water, gathering, as it seemed, through every hairbreadth of that field of light, new pleasure, like a bee among the flowers. Thus, often in those fits of vulgar joy, which, through all seasons, on a child's pursuits are prompt attendance, mid that giddy bliss which, like a tempest, works along the blood and is forgotten, even then I felt gleams like the flashing of a shield. The earth and common face of nature spake to me, rememberable things. Sometimes, tis true, by chance collisions and quaint accidents, like those ill-sorted unions, 
work supposed of evil-minded fairies, yet not vain nor profitless, if happily they impressed collateral objects and appearances, albeit lifeless then, and doomed to sleep until mature seasons call them forth to impregnate and to elevate the mind. And if the vulgar joy by its own weight wearied itself out in the memory, the scenes which were a witness of that joy remained, and their substantial lineaments depicted on the brain, and to the eye were visible, a daily sight. And thus, by the impressive discipline of fear, by pleasure and repeated happiness, so frequently repeated, and by force of obscure feelings representative of joys that were forgotten, these same scenes, so beauteous and majestic in themselves, though yet the day was distant, did at length become habitually dear, and all their hues and forms were by invisible links allied to the affections. I began my story early, feeling, as I fear, the weakness of a human love for days disowned by memory, ere the birth of spring planting my snowdrops among winter snows. Nor will it seem to thee, my friend, so prompt in sympathy that I have lengthened out with fond and feeble tongue a tedious tale. Meanwhile, my hope has been that I might fetch invigorating thoughts from former years might fix the wavering balance of my wind, and haply meet reproaches, too, whose power may spur me on in manhood now mature, to honorable toil. Yet should these hopes be vain, and thus should neither I be taught to understand myself, nor thou to know with better knowledge how the heart was framed of him thou lovest. Need I dread from thee harsh judgments, if I am so loath to quit these recollected hours that have the charm of visionary things, and lovely forms and sweet sensations that throw back our life and almost make our infancy itself a visible scene on which the sun is shining. One end hereby at least hath been attained. My mind hath been revived. And if this mood desert me not, I will forthwith bring down, through later years, the story of my life. 
the road lies plain before me. It is a theme single and of determined bounds. And hence I choose it rather at this time than work of ampler or more varied argument. And with that, my friend, farewell. <laughs>